And the host says, fine, then Sir John Nunn's priest, get up here. You're, you're up next, right? This is, this is what you're supposed to tell. And he says, tell us such a thing as may our heart is glad, right? Be blithe, be happy, be merry. Tell us a happy story. Tell us a fun story. And he says, you know, don't, don't, even if the, even though you're riding on a nag, like an old horse, that's not worth anything. The horse is useful, right? He's serving you. So don't worry about it. It's almost like he's saying, even if your storytelling isn't the best, but it gets the point across, like, let's, let's do that. Okay. And he says, okay, I'm going to tell you a fun, merry story. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. For those of you who don't know, I'm Larissa. Um, I'm the marketing director at AMI. We want to have a discussion. So if you don't mind starting your camera so that we can kind of see each other and participate in conversations, that would be fantastic. If for some reason you can't, of course, we understand. But if you're willing to, that would be great. Um, and before we start, I'm going to hand it over to Nicole, who is our fellowship support coordinator, and she coordinates all our eight-week amazing courses. So I'm going to let her tell you some exciting things that we have coming up. Yeah. Hi, everybody. It's good to see some new and familiar faces. Um, yeah. So we have, we're about to announce our um, summer schedule. So we're going to have two courses this summer starting the first full week of June. They're going to run eight weeks like normal. Um, so we have a returning senior fellow and then a new one as well. So the returning one is um, Pavlos Papadopoulos. He's a senior <clears throat> or he's a teaching fellow at WCC at Wyoming Catholic College, um, which is one of our endorsed institutions. So he's returning. Um, highly recommend if you're a donor and you have access to the AMI archives to go back and listen to his um, course last summer, which was on um, Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. It was excellent. So he's coming back this summer and he's going to teach um, Plato's Republic. So that'll be really fun. And then the second course is going to be a new senior fellow. His name's Jared Stout. He is going to be teaching a course on John Henry Newman's idea of a university. So two really great courses. That's going to be on Thursday. Yeah. And thanks, Jen, for being here. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you all about the nuns priest tale today. Um, yeah, so we can, I guess, go ahead and, and get started. Um, if you don't have a copy of the text, um, we do have, um, I think we can drop in the, the chat, just a link to um, Harvard University has an online version, um, which is, I'm not, uh, I don't love the format of, of this, um, but it, it does give you both the Middle English and a modern English translation, and it goes kind of like line by line. So it's a little confusing to track if you're not paying super close attention, but it is a, um, a good, you know, it's a good, uh, easy resource to, to just pull up. Um, so I think we can, we can put that in the chat in case you don't have a copy. Um, but what I thought I would do uh, before getting into the tale itself, and so here's kind of the way that I'd like to do this tonight is um, I'm going to sort of give us an orientation to some of the really big questions that 
Chaucer is asking us to maybe consider over the course of the tale, over the course of the prologue and the epilogue, which are really critical parts of uh, the tale. In fact, it's where a lot of the uh, the really good stuff kind of comes up and gets raised. Um, and give us a sense for how the nun's priest tale can fit into the larger scope of the Canterbury Tales as a whole. Uh, so what is this work of Chaucer's that we're sort of diving straight into the middle of and, and kind of picking one of, of the many tales that he has to offer, what's going on there. Um, and just kind of give us a, a sense for what Chaucer's into, right? What are these big questions that Chaucer is really interested in um, and, and the unique way in which this particular tale, this beast fable that he's going to tell, allows us to look at those questions in a, in a little bit of a different way. And then, you know, once I kind of get through giving us a bit of an orientation, going through, making sure we're all kind of clear on what's happening in the tale itself, what's, you know, it's a pretty simple story on, on you know, on the bare bones of the plot line. It's a pretty straightforward story, uh, but there's a lot of like conversation that happens around different topics in the tale. And then I would love to just open it up and have a conversation about maybe what was surprising to you, what jumped out at you, what questions do you have about the tale, about some of these big questions that we're going to talk about. And, and we'll just sort of go from there. We'll we'll have a, a, a delightful conversation about this delightful story. Um, I wanted to start off by uh, by saying that it's kind of funny when Larissa first approached me about the idea of doing a webinar and I said, oh, I want to do Chaucer. Um, and, and why don't we do something like the nun's priest tale? And the original sort of idea was to do something that was springtime themed. And I didn't remember this at the time when I until I went back and actually reread the story that, in fact, the action of the nun's priest tale takes place on May the 3rd. And so it could not be more perfect in a way that we are doing a May tale on May 9th. And so I thought that was that was kind of a, a, a fun detail that, that we're, we're hitting almost exactly the right time, uh, almost to the day uh, that the action of this, this particular fable takes place. So with all of that set up then, let's talk a little bit about Chaucer and what's going on? What is this thing called the Canterbury Tales that we're, like I said, diving into the middle of? Um, the Canterbury Tales, if you haven't read it before, if you're not familiar, is this collection of individual stories. It's basically, uh, if we imagine the narrator, Jeffrey, uh, of, this, of this collection, um, is going to go on this pilgrimage journey with these other pilgrims from London to Canterbury to visit the shrine of St. Thomas Becket in Canterbury. And so the, the Canterbury Tales opens with this very famous prologue um, that begins in April, actually. Canterbury Tales begins in April, and they're going to go down. Um, and along the way, the host of the company, he's the host of the, the, like, the tavern where they're all staying, where they've all gathered before they embark on this pilgrimage journey. He says, you know what, it, because, you know, it's like a three-day walk to Canterbury from, from London. And he says, you know, on the way, why don't we have a game? Why don't we do a tale-telling game? Why don't we, every pilgrim on this journey is going to tell a tale on the way there and on the way back. And at the end, we're going to decide, we're going to vote, and we're going to say, who had the best tale? And whoever has the best tale by popular vote gets a free dinner at the tavern once they get back, okay? So he sort of sets the stage for this exchange of stories. Um, and we each we only get sort of the journey there. We don't actually get the journey back. Um, and each of the pilgrims only tells one story, um, except for 
Jeffrey, the Chaucer character who tells two, but that's because the first tale he tells is absolutely terrible and everybody shouts him down and says, that's awful. Like you need to tell something else. And the second one's also terrible for different reasons. And he gets shouted down. It, it's, he makes himself a, uh, a fool. Um, and so he's the only one who gets to tell two, but that's because they're both terrible. Um, but everybody else has one. And what ends up happening is that as we see established in the general prologue, in the storytelling game, that we have certain parameters that are kind of put in place, right? That we want to hear stories, um, he says, of earnest and game, okay? This, this kind of like basically serious stories and playful stories. We want to hear this balance, right? And whoever tells the tales he says, of best sentence and most solaf, that means of highest meaning or best meaning, like meaty stories that, that we can really sink our teeth into and get something out of. But also of, of most solas, that is, they're fun. They're, they're like a balm to the soul, right? They're something that is enjoyable. They're delightful. They make the journey easy. That's the person who's going to win the contest. And he's going to win a free dinner at the end of it. So there's this, this really interesting um, sort of criteria that the host puts into place right at the very beginning, which is that the, the most successful story has to have both of these things. It has to have a meaning to it, makes it worth listening to, because there's something we can gain from hearing this story, something we can take away from it. But it's also a delightful story. So it doesn't bore us. It doesn't make us like angry. It's not a terrible story. Like Chaucer's stories are terrible. They're terrible because they're badly told. Uh, the rhyming is terrible. Like they're just not good stories. Like they're like B-level movies, right? They're really bad. And you know they're really bad. And everybody says, we're, we're done with that. That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for stories that are excellent on both of these levels. Again, meaning but also sort of on the, the style front, right? They're, they're well told, they're excellent stories in their own right and delightful. So that launches us onto this adventure, right? This launches us into this storytelling journey. And we have these storytellers kind of, they get called to the front by the, by the host. And we start with the night and we're gonna go through. And we, what ends up happening is really is like a battle, right? It's a story battle. Um, each storyteller is trying to, in a way, position his or her story against someone else's, taking up a theme or a question, and they're going to tell it a different way. And, you know, the, the Miller is going to make fun of Carpenter. So the Carpenter is going to make fun of Miller's, and we're going to have this like back and forth, you know, and it's, it becomes this really interesting battle of wits and of stories where, you know, some of the tales are really bawdy. They're like, you wouldn't believe that this is a medieval author. You, as we have this idea of the medieval period as, as sort of high and elegant and, you know, spiritual. But they get down in the mud with some of this stuff. And it gets, you know, it gets pretty playful. It gets pretty bawdy at times. Um, and then there are other characters who try to hold the high ground. And they're going to tell, you know, stories about knights and ladies and fairy tales and things like that. Um, and so one of the things that I think is important for us to know, because we are diving right into the middle of this, we're picking a story out of the mix, and we're reading it in isolation, that one of the things that Chaucer has, has structured for us is a 
is a narrative where all of the stories are in conversation with one another, right? So we might think of it as being intertextual and also dialectical. Okay, so in that sense of they refer to one another, they're, like I said, they're taking up some of the same questions, um, they're battling over issues, but they're doing it in in the context of a fictional story rather than sort of a a philosophical battle um, of, you know, just pure philosophy, pure reason. that's kind of what's going on. Okay, so we're going to take a look at some of the moments in the nun's priest tale. And I'll, I'll sort of gesture towards, well, he's he's saying this because of this thing that came before. And he's talking about this issue because this has also been raised before, right? So he's positioning himself very cleverly in conversation with some of the other pilgrims along the road. And so that's something to be aware of is that you can read combinations of the Canterbury Tales and sort of group them thematically, if you will. You can kind of go through and read all of the tales that are in the marriage group, for instance. That is all of the ones that kind of have to do with the theme of marriage. And you can kind of pull all those tales out and read all of those as a collection if you want to. Or you can read sort of the spiritual tales, or you could read the really body tales. Like if you're really just, you know, kind of wanting a laugh, you can read all the ones that are just high comedy um, or low comedy, as the case may be. And so there's this great, range with Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales, or you could just read them straight through. You don't have to skip anything. You just read cover to cover in a sense, right? Um, And in the the prologue to the Miller's Tale, Chaucer invites the reader to to do this in a way. He says, you know what? The Miller's about to tell a really raunchy story. And if you don't like that as the reader, turn over the leaf and choose another tale, right? You have the power to skip this one if you don't want to listen to it. He's like, I'm telling you ahead of time, The guy's drunk and he's going to tell a really raunchy story. So if that's going to offend you, feel free to skip, right? It's sort of like the the content warning that comes up, you know, on on some movies of like, you know, viewer discretion advice. This is sort of like reader discretion, right? And he puts that power um, in our hands to kind of pick and choose the tales that are going to be best um, for us or kind of hit that that sort of um, where we feel we find ourselves and what we're in the mood to, to read or to listen to as the case might be. Um, so it's just a really fun, um, almost like a choose your own adventure book. I like to think of it almost like a choose your own adventure, the Canterbury Tales as a whole. Um, and you really can kind of read um, read as you will, right, through, through the tales. But there is a richness and a depth that kind of comes from reading them in the order that we have them. And there's scholarly debate about the order as there's scholarly debate about most everything having to do with literature. But in the, in the case of the Canterbury Tales, there is actually some discussion about what order the tales should fall in. Um, if you kind of imagine that someone had taken the manuscript and dropped it on the floor and then tried to put things back in order, that's kind of the story of the Canterbury Tales. And so we're, we have different uh, different ideas about the ordering of the tales, but there's there's a sense in which the real power lies with the reader. And that's what Chaucer has kind of given us. And so one of the questions then becomes with Chaucer, how do we read and how do we read well? Okay, so coming back to that initial question about the way the host presents the game, says best sentence and most solace, right? Best moral teaching or most sort of best food for the soul and for the mind, if you want to think about it that way, and also most delightful, just good, good, solid storytelling. 
he's inviting us in a way to consider how we read, what we're reading for, right? Um, how do we evaluate the stories that we read? And what are we, what are we to do with a story that on the surface of it seems very silly? A story about a rooster and his hen wives and his, you know, getting caught in a barnyard by a fox. Like, what are we supposed to do with this? This seems like it has nothing to do with anything except a very playful Aesop fable-ish like story. Uh, but of course, if we know Aesop's fables, we know that each of those has a very strongly stated moral at the end of them, right? So we know that animal fables, beast fables are meant to be read for a moral. They're meant to be read for some sort of lesson that they're going to teach us. Um, and he's tapping into that um, for us. And so one of the things that I think is helpful about sort of reflecting on medieval ways of reading books is to think about the four levels that really was, was developed out of the, the clerks who were trying to study sacred scripture. And they wanted to understand the layers and layers of meaning that were involved in sacred scripture. And they developed what's called like a fourfold levels of reading to try to encompass both the fact that the scriptures have a literal level to them. That is the story of the Hebrews leaving Egypt, right? That is an actual story. We see them leave Egypt, cross the Red Sea, head into the desert and ultimately into the promised land, right? Um, but they felt there was more to that story than just the story of the liberation from Egypt. So they wanted to read into that story in a way like an allegory of how do we understand salvation? How do we understand our journey from a state of sin to a state of grace, for example? How do we understand this story of going from the slavery of Egypt to the freedom of the promised land as in a way a representation of our journey from earth to our heavenly Jerusalem, our heavenly home, ultimately. And so in a way they developed this, like I said, this fourfold level of reading, um, the literal level, which is simply the story, the plot, the characters, what happens, the deeds, if you will, of this story, the allegorical level, which hints at what you should believe about things. What's the truth of the matter, right? What's the, what's the larger question that's at stake? The moral level of reading, which has to do with what you're supposed to do with that, right? How are you supposed to act in response to what you've now learned? How does this help guide us? You know, for example, like uh, understanding this journey of the soul from sin to grace, right? How do we get there? How do we move, make that journey? And then finally, the anagogical level or the eschatological level, if you want to call it that. But anagogical simply means, where are you headed? Where are you going? What's the, you know, death, judgment, heaven, hell, like the, the, the big questions at the end of life, where are we going in this life and where are we headed? And so, you know, as we're kind of thinking about the nun's priest and the beast fable that he tells, we should understand that in the back, of our minds, at least, if not in the forefront of our minds, we know that Chaucer knew very well that this method of reading was part of what he was inviting us into, right? He was inviting us into this kind of conversation around some of these really big questions. So with that, then let's, let's take a look at the tale. All of that sort of is as a lead-in um, to 
the humor of this story. And really, this is a funny story. And it's a funny story because they shut down the monk who is telling a tragedy and nobody wants to hear a tragedy. Um, the knight interrupts. If we look at the prologue to the nun's priest, the knight interrupts and says, good, sir, no more of this. No, no, no. Stop. So he also has an interrupted tale. The monk does just like Chaucer, Jeffrey, the narrator does. And the, the, um, the knight says, no, no, um, tragedy. We're not, we're not doing tragedy. Right. Uh, I don't, you know, we like to hear about men who have, they're sort of riding high on the wheel of fortune which was a medieval concept before we ever made it into a game show. Okay, this idea of the wheel of fortune that sometimes the fortune's wheel will turn and everyone will have prosperity. Someone will have prosperity in their life. Everything will be going well. And then there's a sudden fall, right? Okay, and that's the wheel turning and that's the tragedy of this. And he says, I, nobody wants to hear that. Um, people want to hear how somebody climbs out of the, the low places, right? The, the, the tragedy that they're in and they come out on the other side and that is joy and solace. He says, that's what we want to hear. Um, but nobody wants to hear the other side of the wheel. Nobody wants to hear about the fall. They just want to hear about the sort of like the redemption story. That's what we want. And the host agrees with him and he says, yeah, yeah, we don't want tragedy. No more tragedy. This is terrible. Um, all he's saying is how fortune covers these people with a cloud and it's really annoying. And it's a pain. He says, it's a pain to hear of heaviness. We don't want to listen to this. This is not that, you know, going back to the, to the parameters that he set. He says, this is not so lost. This is not the kind of comfort and joy that we want to hear. And he says, so Sir Monk, tell us something else. Give us a different story. Like, we don't want your tragedy. Figure out something else. Your tale annoyeth all this company, he says. <laughs> You're annoyed. Take your tragedy and go somewhere else. Um, so he says, tell us something else. And the monk says, no, I'm not going to play. He uses that, that word play. And he says, I'm not going to tell another story. Like I don't, he's a very serious fellow. He has no interest in telling a comedy or we might call a comedy, a story with a happy ending, right? He wants to tell a tragedy because it's noble, right? And it's, it's this high thing. And he says, so, so make somebody else tell a story. I'm done. I don't want to, I don't want to play anymore. And the host says, fine, then Sir John, nuns, priest, get up here. You're, you're up next, right? This is, this is what you're supposed to tell. And he says, tell us such a thing as may our heart is glad, right? Be blithe, be happy, be merry. Tell us a happy story. Tell us a fun story. And he says, you know, don't, don't, even if the, even though you're riding on a nag, like an old horse, that's not worth anything. The horse is useful, right? He's serving you. So don't worry about it. It's almost like he's saying, even if your storytelling isn't the best, but it gets the point across, like, let's, let's do that. Okay. And he says, okay, I'm going to tell you a fun, merry story. Okay. So we get a comedy, we get a beast fable, a funny story, because that's sort of the command that the host has given him, right? The host has said, tell us a merry story. But what's interesting is, if we look at what happens in the nun's priest tale, it is absolutely the turn of the wheel of fortune. It is a wheel of fortune story, right? We have Chanticleer, who's the rooster, and he's proud and he's gorgeous, and he has seven wives, you know, who all are as lovely as he is, and he he's lord of his roost. 
and he's high and mighty and he experiences a dreadful fall that's likened to the fall of Troy at the end by the fox grabbing him, right? And trying to drag him off. But then we have the redemption at the end, right? He does get released and he flies away and the fox is thwarted and all comes right in the end, right? Um, and so we kind of have, even though the host said, tell us a merry story, we do kind of, we, we get the other, the turn of the wheel, but, but there is a little bit of a tragedy uh, in the middle of this. Um, and so it's, it's interesting to, to kind of look at that. Um, in the course of that prologue, there's a little piece of uh, something that the host says that I think is really worth us paying attention to. And it's in the context of him condemning the monk's tale as being annoying. And he says, it's true, it's certain. And this is around line 3000 or so. Well, it depends on the, the numbering of your, of your lines, but in the, in the prologue here. And he says, um, the, all of these clerks say that if a man has no audience, it doesn't help him to tell his sentence, that is his lesson, his moral, his meaning. You have to have the audience if you want to say something that has meaning, right? If you lose the audience, you're done. You're done. It doesn't, it, what does it profit you to speak? Because the audience is no longer listening. And he says, your tale has been told all in vain, right? Um, because everything about your story was putting everybody to sleep. You were losing your audience. And so if you lose the audience, it doesn't matter how good the thing is that you're trying to say, it's not gonna matter, right? Um, so it's this tiny little moment, but it's, it's, again, it's a critical little note on storytelling, right? Good storytelling, what does good storytelling do? It captures the audience, it holds the audience's attention and holds it long enough for you to be fed a meaning without almost without you even realizing that that's what's happened and then inviting you to kind of reflect on it once you're done. That's really good storytelling, right? Um, it gives you food for thought long after the story itself is over, right? Good sermons work this way too, right? Or they should, right? Um, same kind of idea that you kind of, you have this rhetorical power that captures the audience, holds their attention, gives them something to think about, and then they're, they're going to ruminate over that long after you're done speaking. Okay. So that's just, again, the host with his very subtle little, like, this is how we know a good story, like holding the audience's attention. So if we go through quickly, and then I, I want to open it up for, for some questions here. Um, we, you know, we, we have the story, as I said, the plot is extremely simple, right? Trying to clear the rooster has a bad dream that, that, you know, and the, the argument over dream lore takes up almost as much of the poem as the actual action of the poem itself. And, you know, he goes into the barnyard and gets caught by Russell the fox, Don Russell the fox. And the um, Chanticleer is able to escape by sort of appealing to the fox's sense of pride. And he is able to escape and 
the story ends um, by this um, this sort of lesson about flattery, right? And he says, if you hold this tale to be a folly, as of a fox or of a cock in hand, take it the morality, take the moral. What's the moral of the story, good men? For St. Paul says that all that written is to our doctrine, it is written, right? St. Paul says everything that is written is written for our doctrine. Okay, so he's going to quote St. Paul and invite us to think. He says, take the fruit and let the chaff be still. Okay, so there's like three, like rhetorically, the power of threes, right? The three invitations to read carefully, read carefully, read carefully, understand there's something else going on. You think this is just a silly story about a fox and a hen and a rooster. Think again, right? Read again, because St. Paul says everything that's written is written for our doctrine. And he says, that's, that's what we should be reading for. Okay. Um, so before we kind of get into then thinking about maybe what the moral of this story is, what is it exactly that he's trying to communicate? I want to just, like I said, kind of hint to us some of the big questions that the tale takes up that are kind of hints at or in conversation with some of the other stories. So this question we've already talked about of, of play versus seriousness, tragedy versus comedy, right? Um, that's a big one that's already come up in the prologue itself and in the tale. What is the value of tragedy? What's the value of comedy? How do we understand these things? Um, there's this debate between the authorities on a subject and what you experience in your own life. What has greater value? All of the books that you could read on a subject or the merit of your own experience or the experience of someone that you know and trust, right? Experience versus authority. This is a question that the wife of Bath brings up among others, but she's very strident about the value of experience over authority. The question about what women really want. Pertolote tells Chanticleer very explicitly, how dare you tell me you're scared of a nightmare, right? Don't you know that women want someone who's not scared, right, of stuff, especially not dreams? She says, why would you tell me that? This is what women want. And that was the question at the heart of the Wife of Bath's tale as well, as in, as in many of the tales in the marriage group, all kind of center around this question. What do women really want and why, right? Um, and so that's a, a big question that kind of comes up in this context of this conversation between the rooster and his wife. We said uh, this question about how to read and, and the question about how are stories true, right? What is the truth of a story? Where does the truth of a story reside? He says, this story about Chanticleer is as true or is also true as is the book of Lancelot of the Lake. So going to our Arthurian legends, he's like, this story is just as true as that one is. <laughs> we might ask. How true is Lancelot? How true? What does that mean, right? That this story is as true as this other fictional story. Does that just mean we throw it out? We dismiss it? It's fiction. It doesn't mean anything. Does that mean something else? Okay. So I think with that, um, there's so much more that, that, you know, we can kind of talk through. There's, there's a lot of detail around the debate, the dream poem section, you know, what's going on with this dream lore. 
uh, the different approaches to an experience? How do we understand an experience? Um, but I think I'd like to just see if if anyone has at this point any questions that they that they kind of ran into as they were reading the story, passages that struck you that you might want to dive into um, before I kind of go any any further. I'd like to just see if if any of you have any passages in particular that you wanted to look at. And if not, that's fine. You can also drop those in the chat as we go through and we can come to them at the end as well. I just wanted to ask if there were any questions at this point. Okay, well, if you do have a question, definitely drop it, drop it in the chat and we'll come to that uh, towards the end. And, and I'll have a few questions for you as well. But let's maybe start by thinking about um, the, the problem of the dream, okay? So when Chanticleer has this nightmare, he says, he's groaning in his sleep and, and Pertilote says, what, what, what is wrong with you, right? Heart dear, what ails you? Like, what's wrong with you? And he says, I've had this terrible, terrible dream. I dreamed of this creature, right? And what he describes, of course, is the fox. It's this reddish colored creature. And he has a, a black tail. The tip of his tail is black and the tips of both his ears are black. And he has this little small snout, you know, and he's in great detail without naming it, describes what a fox is. And she says, oh, I cannot love a coward. And this is where she goes off on her thing of like, you know what women really want. We all desire to have husbands who are hardy, wise, and free, right? That is just, they're not, they're not, you know, they're prudent. Uh, they're not miserly. They're not a fool. And they don't boast, right? These are the things that we want in a husband, she says. And then she proposes to him a solution. So. What I, I think I'd like to see if anyone has a thought on this. Like, what is her solution to this, this nightmare that he's had? What does, she, what does she credit as being at fault for the fact that he is having bad dreams? And what's the solution to the bad dream problem that Chanticleer is having? Any thoughts? Well, I, I'll just say that it's, she thinks he's having indigestion and <laughs> she prescribes a laxative. Yes, exactly, right, exactly. She says, oh, you're the, the four humors. Okay, so the, here we go with, you know, sort of medieval understanding about like the balances of the humors. You're, you're choleric, you're too, that part of you, the spleen is too inflamed, right? And you're also melancholic because this creature had, you know, sort of a, a, a tip of his tail is black and the tips of his ears are black. And that means that also your melancholic humor is out of balance. So cholera means you dream about red beasts and red things and red, red stuff attacks you. And, and melancholic humor means that, you know, you dream about black bears and black devils and like all of these other things, right? So she kind of is like that, to her, that makes the most sense. And you're exactly right. She says, I'm gonna, I, I have a solution for you. You just need to go eat all these weeds and I'm gonna tell you to eat because that's gonna fix you right up. You need to rebalance your system. 
And she says for a day or two, you'll have digestives and then you'll be fine. You're going to go eat all these weeds. And she prescribes him this whole like set of, of things. And she's like, even though there's no apothecary in the town, I know herb lore and I'm going to prescribe what's best for you. And she also quotes to him Cato. And that's the fatal mistake because that's what launches him into this huge, like textual, like, well, you brought up Cato. So let me, let me contrary, uh, come up with something, a contrary argument to that. She says, Cato says, don't pay, pay any attention to dreams. That's what Cato says. And he, he's like, oh no, the, what the authorities say, if Cato, if you can cite me Cato, I can see your Cato citation and I can raise you all of these other textual authorities that say you should pay attention to dreams because they are prophetic and they mean things. And if I don't pay attention to this dream, bad stuff is going to happen to me. And he goes through this huge list, right? All of these different stories. He tells the story, right? About the two, uh, the two travelers who go to the village and they can't stay in the same hostel. So one goes to sleep in a stable, an oxen stall, and the other one goes to sleep, right? And they dream, the guy dreams that his friend says, I'm getting it murdered. And then he is murdered. And he's like, that's where you're going to find my body. He does find the body. And it's sort of this proof. And then the two men who were supposed to go on the sea voyage. And it's sort of a similar story, right? The one guy gets the dream that warns him, like, if you go on this voyage, you're going to drown. And he says, I'm not going. And the other guy's like, ha ha, you're a fool for believing in dreams. And he goes out on the ship and drowns. And the other guy's like, oh, well, I'm glad I didn't, glad I didn't, you know, go on that sea voyage and listen to my dream. And he says, therefore, Pertolote, I have all these examples and more that I could cite you. And then he brings up a saint story, like if, as if these other, you know, more, I suppose we might say classical secular stories, authorities are not enough. He has the story, right, of uh, St. Kenum and how St. Kenum had this dream and then it came true. And he says, you know, Macrobius, this is the favorite source on dream, the understanding of the meaning of dreams. The medievals, very, Chaucer wrote a lot of dream poetry himself, very fascinated with the meanings of dreams. Uh, we might think that's sort of a, a recent phenomenon. Um, it's very, very ancient, right? This fascination with what dreams mean and are they reliable or not? Can you trust them or not? Goes all the way back to the ancients. We see dreams coming up in Homer, um, in Virgil, right? And, and carrying on into the medieval period. And there were these writers who were trying to understand dream theory. Macrobius was the sort of source in his um, dream of Scipio, his commentary on the dream of Scipio. And he says, look, you, oh yeah, and you can go to scripture. So he's like, I'm gonna cite you the, these two stories, a saint story, Macrobius's dream of Scipio, and then also all of these Old Testament stories like Daniel and Joseph and Pharaoh and Croesus and you know, Andromache and Andromache and all of these people who had dreams that were prophetic. Right. And he says, so. I'm not taking any laxatives. I think the dreams are like, I, I think I'm going to go with what I think about dreams. Right. And, um, and he says, I'm, I'm not going to be a, I'm not going to be afraid of my dream anymore, Pertolote, but I'm also not taking any laxatives because I don't think it's indigestion. I think it's actually real. Right. Um, and it turns out that he's right actually. Right. Um, so I guess the question really is, why 
in the middle of this beast fable, are we having this huge debate about what causes bad dreams and should you believe them or not? I mean, this takes up a huge amount of the story, right? It kind of almost distracts us from the action of the, of the, of the plot. So does anyone have any thoughts on what's the point of this discussion, this digression, if you might say, this barnyard battle of texts and wits and interpretations over the meaning of dreams? Any thoughts on that? Well, I, I don't have any thoughts, but um, I do have a question. Um, mm -hmm. now, my understanding is Chaucer's about a hundred years after Thomas Aquinas. And I'm not um, as familiar as I should be about Aquinas and scholastic theology, but I'm assuming uh, Thomas dealt with dreams um, in his theology. I mean, he talked about everything, I assume. Um, is there any evidence that uh, there's a scholastic influence or a Thomistic influence mm. in Chaucer? That's such an interesting question. Um, and and I will say, I'm not as familiar with, with, uh, with Thomas to, to be able to say that, um, to be able to point to a place where he spoke about the sort of the theology of, of dreams um, I would but, have to go back and, and take a look at that. I think it's a really interesting question for sure. I'm, yeah. Yeah. Well, I just, um, I don't even, was Chaucer educated in the continental schools? I mean, so he would have been familiar with Aquinas because that would have been the courses he took. Yes. Yes. Okay. No, he, he definitely would have known. Um, he definitely would have been familiar with the scholastics, um, with, a, with a lot of the philosophy with, um, he did a translation of Boethius's consolation of philosophy, for yes. example. Yeah. So he's, he is, a, he's well, he's well aware that he's kind of tapping into veins of thought, I suppose you mm -hmm. might say on, on these different topics. Um, I'm not as familiar, like if there is a, a sort of a scholastic thread on, on dream theory. Um, that would be really interesting to to sort of explore um, what he's kind of tapping into there. Um, yeah, but and I do, and I don't know offhand. Yeah. So, so in these two things you brought up, uh, it's either secular or mm -hmm. um, you know Judeo Christian uh, authority, mm -hmm. and um, they because I'm not as familiar as I, as you are, obviously, I don't know which one, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't seem in the story, one or the other wins out. Mm -hmm. They're just kind of competing. And we know that Chanticleer has his own ideas. And, uh, but it, the story bears out the fact that the dream was in fact prophetic. Mm -hmm. So, Anyway, it's just uh, yeah. It, no, it's 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 a great. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, could it be that um, 
putting putting these two theories about dreams, a kind of practical uh, theory that is just what you ate and um, indigestion versus the, the theory that dreams are prophetic, putting, it's a fairly heavy topic, but putting them into the mouths of two barnyard animals makes, makes the, uh, the, the, the disquisition on these things funny at the same time without, without really robbing them of their serious undertone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love, I love that you put it that way. And I think there's, there's a lot to that. And I think that's, that's one of the things that I love about the way that Chaucer handles many of these topics um, is that he does find a way to do it in with, with humor, but as you say, without destroying the fact that these, these in fact are fairly serious questions about what, you know, if you do have a dream, is it, you know, he cites scripture, which seems to suggest, yes, that God can sometimes work through dreams. I mean, we can look at not just the old Testament, right. But, but Joseph in the new Testament is told by the angel to take Mary and the child into Egypt, for example. So, you know, there, there are, there's plenty of scriptural authority. And perhaps this comes back to the, the scholastic question, right? There's, there's plenty of uh, a sort of authority on that side um, to suggest that this is a very serious question of how God works and how, you know, and he even has, in fact, to take it one step further, um, he, he has this whole question about how does God's foreknowledge and our free will collide, right? This, this is the, you know, uh, it's around 32, 35, um, where he says, you know, oh, Chanticleer, and it's sort of this, uh, you know, very dramatic address to the rooster. Oh, Chanticleer, accursed be that morrow that thou into the yard flew from the beams that you went ahead into the yard, even though God had sort of warned you otherwise. Um, and he says that, you know, you were full well warned by your dreams that that day was perilous to you. But what God foreknew must needs be after the opinion of certain clerks, right? And he says that, you know, everybody has this, this uh, great disputation. He quotes Augustine or Boethius, right? Whether God's foreknowledge uh, means that I must do a thing or whether I still have the freedom to choose whether or not to do it. And he says, you know, is it necessity or do I have free choice, even though God foreknows that this is what I was going to do all along? Um, and so right in the middle again, right? Not only do we have this massive conversation about the significance of dreams, but then he's going to tie it to the providence of God and God's foreknowledge and free will, which Augustine and Boethius and all of these other philosophers have taken up and theologians throughout the centuries, right? And so again, he's like just tapping us into a whole line of conversation and discourse, right? Around a topic, but he's dropping it in the middle of a barnyard fable about this rooster who's decided to fly out into the yard and have his morning breakfast with his hens and and somehow this is supposed to help us to understand foreknowledge and free will, right? And that 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 raises this question. So, yeah, it's 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 I think part of the delight of Chaucer's art that he's able to sort of drop us into or hint that we should engage with 
these, you know, conversations, these much larger conversations, um, while doing so in this delightful way, where if you didn't know any of this, any dream lore, didn't know who any of these people were, um, didn't know Augustine, didn't know this whole, you know, theological conversation about fate and free will and God's providence and all of that, you could still just enjoy this delightful barnyard story about a rooster and a fox and a hen, right? Um, the vehicle itself is a delight, but there is something going on, right? And he's hinting at these important questions. And then the moral question at the end, right? how does Chanticleer outsmart his opponent? How does he outsmart the fox? He plays on his vanity by flattering him, right? And he flatters him. And the fox says, you know, God give him mischance. That is God give him punishment or a, a bad outcome that is so indiscreet of governance that jangleth when he should hold his peace. That is who speaks when he should be silent, right? That's sort of in, in a nutshell, right? If you're, if you're indiscreet, you're not self-governed and you speak when you should hold your peace, then you deserve to lose your breakfast, right? You deserve to lose what you could have gained because you are imprudent and you have been um, sort of subject to flattery. And that's what the, the, the nun's priest then follows that up. He says, such it is to be reckless and negligent and trust in flattery. And then that's when he follows up, as I said, with this command three times that we read for our doctrine, for instruction, right? So I guess one of the questions then becomes, is this just a beast fable about the dangers of flattery and the problem of vanity? Or do you all think that there are other serious questions or serious, like a serious moral lesson perhaps that we might draw from this story that's not just sort of the beast fable you know Aesop's fable version of of what's going on here did you all feel that there was something else perhaps going on in in sort of like that understanding of like as St. Paul says all that is written is written for our doctrine like what what is going on with this beast fable Um, I, I thought that, and I might be pushing it a little hard, but wondering what you think of this. Seems to me that Bertolet is 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 very modern in some ways. Uh, she has a pharmacological solution to human ailments, um, and um, Chanticleer is very traditional. He sees the the uh, individual as more than biochemistry. Um, it's made up of spiritual and, uh, and and that sort of thing. So I think that's going on as a kind of subtext. But I, I, may, I may be pushing it too far to say that she's kind of a, a modern pharmacological, um, pharmacologically inclined uh, person, uh, creature. What do you think? I mean, I, I personally think that you could be onto something there because that in a way that's the territory that's staked out in that discussion about dreams, right? Is it just simply, um, do we simply understand the workings of the world in this very um, 
in just simply the physical workings of the universe, right? In, in sort of like, how do we measure things? How do we understand things? And in a way, Chanticleer himself, he's an, ast- he's an astronomer. Do you all notice like the precision with which he crows at like the 40 degree ascension of, you know, the, the, the astrolog? He's like, in a way, um, there's a way of understanding, like we might think, well, the rooster crows when the sun comes up. Like there's a sort of gentle barnyard, like mystery to how the rooster knows when he's supposed to crow. Um, but we're told that he is more precise than a clock in his reading of the equinox, right? He understands the ascension. He knows each ascension of the equinoxial, we're, t- we're told, at the very opening. And we come back around to that, you know, and, and we're told that he, again, this is, you know, when 30 days had passed since March began, you know, and Chanticleer is walking in and the sign of Taurus had run 20 degrees and what, I mean, it's just like incredibly, almost ridiculously precise reading of the sign, the astronomical signs, the astrological signs. Um, and that's when he crows and that's when he knows it's time to crow. And so I wonder if there's something to that, right? The over measuring, the over uh, precision of sort of the physical universe to the abandoning of this more spiritual reality that, as you point out, that Chanticleer is really trying to tap into with all of these authorities on like, you know, the, the prophecy of dreams is, is, is a real thing. And we see it in these stories. Um, but stories in a way have nothing to do with sort of the very practical, like I'm going to prescribe you a laxative, you know, like the, so in a way, I mean, I wonder, I wonder like taking your, your question, maybe your, your, your thought a step further um, is, is it maybe kind of getting to the very heart of that as well of like, you know, there's something about stories that's valuable, right? That we learn something from all of these stories. What he's learned from all of these stories is that you should pay attention to dreams. Um, she's like, I'm not dealing with stories. Stories are not useful. They're not practical. And she knows enough of like the workings of the, of the physical humors to, to sort of think otherwise. Um, so maybe that's, that's part of it too, at issue. Um, where do we get our, how do we form our judgment about what's right to believe, what's right to do, right? It's kind of going back to those levels of reading. yeah, it almost presents that question to us, right? Do we simply read events like we would read a story with simply this practical sort of application? Um, or are we kind of reading for this greater sort of significance? Um, so that's a kind of a very long way around of saying that I think you're you're on to something when you're saying that there's this, there's this very um lovely distinction that that Chaucer's making. Again, with with all of the humor of putting this in the in the voice of these birds. And he says, well, in those days they could talk. <laughs> so they're having this conversation. Um, putting it in the in the language of the barnyard, um, that we're still kind of driving at these really serious questions. Um, questions that that Chaucer really does in, in the rest of the Canterbury Tales in one way or another. He's always kind of asking us, how do we form our judgment? how do we read everything, right? Not just a book, but how do we read the book of our experience? How do we read, um, you know, those around us? How do we understand one another? And, and um, so in, in, a, in that sense, I think it's, 
there is something else. There's another subtext, as you said, right? Beyond just the sort of beast fable moral of don't speak when you should be silent, which is a very Aesopian moral if I ever heard one, right? Um, no, I think I think uh, there's there's more, uh, more than that. And and the way he's referring us to all of these other texts, like we know them, right? Like we're familiar. To say that all of the hens wept for Chanticleer more than the women of Troy cried over Pyrrhus slaying King Priam uh, in the Aeneid, right? So it's like tapping us way back into the epic tradition as these hens are weeping over this rooster who's just been caught by a fox. I mean, it's the collision of, again, of genre is, is funny, but it's also, I think, raising a really interesting uh, interesting question. Um, and he refers us to a, to a historical event as well when King Richard was slain and Geoffrey of Vinsoff, you know, has a sort of lamentation. There's this sort of like his historical and his literary parallels to the hens weeping over Chanticleer's uh, fate, um, which again, it's, it's, it's funny, but it's funny because it's like colliding things that don't belong together. The epic and the beast fable should almost certainly have nothing to do with one another. And yet this is what Chaucer has decided to, to bring into conversation, um, in this, in this story. I have a, a question about, um, this is before uh, printing, obviously. So these stories, although Chaucer wrote them, um, it almost sounds in a way Shakespearean mm -hmm. in that yeah. um, there, you could imagine this being played or, or maybe not played, but rehearsed in a way that, um, uh, and I don't know whether Chaucer would ever uh, intended it, but you could ha imagine people memorizing these tales and because they are funny and entertaining. Um, there were obviously in that period and for uh, centuries before the mystery plays mm -hmm. that were similar morality tales. But um, I guess, so that's one thing. Um, the other thing I uh, wanted to suggest was the moral for both uh, the Fox and uh, Chanticleer is they both have the same fault. They're both flat. The, the reason why they <laughs> lose whatever they've lost is because, or or gain it back, is because the other per the other character. It, it has fallen for a, a, an appeal to their pride or flattery. And um, so it's, it's kind of like flattery got Chanticleer into the problem, but also got him out of it. Yeah. So uh, how do you make sense of that? And then the, the, the quote from St. Paul doesn't refer to, anything that you read but only holy scripture right. <laughs> right. so that um obviously chaucer is writing something he hopes people will get something from i i, I don't know 
Yeah. You know, he, he couldn't have been writing to make money. I, I don't understand the economics yeah. of all this. I mean, he's an artist. Yeah. Um, he had a gift. He couldn't do anything other, like many artists, than what he did, mm-hmm. um, even if he was starving to death. Um, but obviously, he knew how to entertain people. And uh, so anyway, I, like I was yeah. mixing all these things up. It seems kind of like Shakespeare in a way who his plays could be understood in a way that was just pure body uh, entertainment. It, what did they call it? The groundlings <laughs> understood his plays in one way, but other people understood it in a completely different way. Um, so there's there's something to that. And I think, you know, Homer has elements like that as well. So um, I don't know. So being the oral tradition, when they're referring to Cato, when referring to the Aeneid, when referring to Homer, people who had heard stories had heard all these stories. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have television. They didn't have books. So they just heard these stories. I suppose just like we do, we hear stories or read stories over and over again. And then all of a sudden, 10, 20, 30 years later, oh, that's, I'm getting something different from it. So there, I, there's all those elements to it. And I'll be quiet. <laughs> no, I, I love that you've raised all of these because again, the brilliance of this is that, that he is putting intention, sort of the, the oral storytelling, because these are in the frame narrative of this pilgrimage game that they're doing, they're told orally, right? This is on the journey to Canterbury. All of these characters are speaking these stories aloud. They're telling them aloud. But the Canterbury Tales as as an artifact is meant to be read, as we know from the narrator saying, turn over the leaf and choose another tale, like quite literally turn the page, Mm -hmm. right? So he's he's definitely playing with that tradition of the oral storytelling but the experience of reading it on the page is something different too, right? Um, so he's definitely playing with that. And I, I love that you sort of raised that. So he's very aware that he's kind of tapping into both traditions, kind of trying to have his cake and eat it too in a way. Um, so there is definitely a performative aspect to the tales, which I think, you know, as we get the the interruptions and the sort of rude insults sometimes of the host saying, you know, that story is garbage. Like, tell us a different tale. Like, it's very dynamic. And we could almost imagine it playing out, as you say, you know, either on a stage or in real life, like on the road, somebody tells a really bad joke and you're like, oh my God, like, stop, like, stop telling those stories. Like you're done. Like you just go back over here. Um, Those dynamics feel very real. But then I really wanted to pick up um, on, on the, on the mention of the audience. Right. And are they familiar or not with the authorities that he's citing, right? And the, the sort of like the learned aspect of, of, this, of this poem, right? And this is a big, big question. This is another one of these huge questions in Chaucer because he's writing in English at a time when if you wanted to be taken seriously, you wrote in Latin. Um, if you wanted to be taken as a serious philosopher, poet, uh, theologian of any sort, you did not write in the common tongue of the people. You wrote in Latin. And he certainly knew Latin. It's not like he didn't know it. 
Um, but he chose to write in English, much like Dante chose to write in Italian, right? Dante chose to write in Italian instead of in Latin for the same reason. Chaucer's coming later than Dante, but following in the same tradition of this, almost like resurgence of the, of the vernacular languages as capable of carrying a serious, uh, serious weight, right? When before all of the serious literature had been written in, in Latin as sort of the scholarly language. Um, and, and we get one single glimpse into this problem of who knows what language and who's learned and who's not. When he quotes, there's one Latin line mm -hmm. in this tale, and it's, it's when Tonticleer tells Pertolote that he, he just, he's so distracted by her beauty. He just, when, when he feels her feathers, you know, he can't think of anything else and all of this. And he says, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm forgetting all my fear, right? And he says, for, he says, in principio, mulier est hominis confusio at 3164, 3163 or so. And he says, Madame, the sentence of this Latin is, that is the meaning of the Latin phrase is, quote, woman is man's joy and all his bliss. Now you don't actually need to really be a Latin scholar to look at the word confusio and know that that does not mean <laughs> bliss. <laughs> it does not mean that. In fact, you're, if, if you have a, a text that has a note on this, um, what mulier est hominis confusio really means is woman is man's ruin. <laughs> but how he translates it to Pertolot, who clearly doesn't know Latin, is woman is man's joy and all his bliss, which almost like encapsulates the wife of Bath and like so many of these other tales that are having to do with the sort of di relationship dynamics between men and women. And he's sort of like in one sentence, just like, dropped to this incredible, um, all of these debates open up, right? She doesn't know Latin. She doesn't know that he's mistranslating this text, right? He's citing it like, you, if you speak Latin, it means you're an authority, right? And so he's almost like abusing this, like he, he either knows Latin or he doesn't really know Latin, but he's heard this phrase. And so he's going to repeat it here because it sounds really fancy and he's going to tell her that's what this means. And I know Latin and isn't this great? And it goes back to maybe the vanity thing. But it's tapping into what Chaucer was very well aware of as a poet, which is this huge debate about the validity of the vernacular as sort of a vehicle for uh, serious literary endeavors. And that's something that he, I think, is trying to work with. So there's all of this is to say, right? And, and, and again, like we have limited time here and, and, and we're sort of winding down, but all of this is to just to say that with, with Chaucer, um, there are so many little threads that you could pull. You know, you could sort of take, take just one of these and kind of run it all the way through the tales. Say, what is he saying about this, this problem of the vernacular and Latin and who reads texts and how do they interpret texts for other people? And are they misleading people by mistranslating or misinterpreting, misreading? That's a huge theme throughout the tales. You can kind of pull that one thread or you could pull the thread of authority versus experience or like the relationship between men. I mean, there's, you could literally kind of go through like a tapestry and kind of just trace one thread all the way through. Um, but, but he's brilliant in the way that like Dante, right? He's, he's comprehensive like Dante is um, in both his range of knowledge, but also his ability to like, kind of like, 
dump all of these things into one place and kind of ask us to sift it out and sort it out. Um, but without it being a drag, right? It's it's delightful what he's doing. But it's also like the the deeper you dig, the more you sort of unearth and the more kind of expeditions you can kind of go on um, with with Chaucer's poetry. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I I, I love his poetry so much is um, I find him funnier than Dante. <laughs> and so I, I delight in that. Um, Dante has moments, but Chaucer really has moments. He's really leaned into the power of, of humor. Um, and, and so, yeah, that's, um, that's, that's one of the things I think is, is so delightful about this particular tale again, because it's accessible in a certain way. It's a, it's a barnyard fable. It's, it's, a, it's an easy point of entry. Um, for an audience, but as as you all have indicated, right, and and as we've been discussing tonight, there are so many little threads and little little um, questions and big questions. Like these are serious questions, like you know, questions that have preoccupied philosophers and theologians for centuries. That he's just dropping into a barnyard conversation um, and asking us to open up and reflect on. You know, I almost think of it as like. Um, like a document where, like we might say now, like a document where there are hyperlinks and you just sort of like click the link to like learn more about this and you like open up this whole other thing and then you can click this one and you can open up this whole other thing. You know, they had this in their memory. They had this in their storehouse. Uh, we don't, we have, <laughs> we have Google for some of that um, and, and books and books and libraries and, and all of that. But, uh, but they kind of had this capaciousness of imagination that allowed them to pull together all of these things um in a delightful sort of way. So with that, I think I'll open it up for any any final thoughts or questions as we as we sort of bring our our time together this evening to to a close. Um any any other thoughts or questions on the the tale of Chanticleer and the fox. Yeah, I I got a couple uh thoughts about kind of like everything that we've discussed. Um Kind of on you. You mentioned something about how you know the wheel of fortune isn't just like a new thing. It's and I've been seeing this around a lot of like everything old is new again mm-hmm. with the rise of like modern paganism. And so this idea that the dreams are actually um, uh, vi- like visions of the future and not that you just ate too much, which it could be both because I've had times where, you know, I either drank too much or I had too much steak or whatever. And then I have some really weird dreams that don't make any sense. Um, but, uh, so, so that's one, one case of like, you know, and then with the astronomy or astrology, um, you know, that's a rise in fashion again, and they think they're all like discovered something new, but here's this set of poems from like 1300. So there, that kind of strikes me. Um, and then also about the, uh, the fact that it was written in English versus, uh, versus Latin. When this was written, wouldn't most of the people who would be able to actually read English also read Latin. So it was kind of, I, I, I get the feeling that it was written more for the educated, educated folks um and that's why you could throw in all the little in jokes about latin and uh the aeneid and and all that uh stuff but 
but yeah, so it, it, it's, I don't think it was kind of mutually exclusive because like, if you're, if you're going to be educated enough to read Latin, you're probably going to be able to read some sort of English um, at this time, given the literacy rates. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge question, right? And, and sort of the study of, um, of this is, is, what was the access like? I mean, books, um, we, I think this came up a little bit earlier as well. I mean, these were hand copied manuscripts. They were very expensive to come by. Um, you know, the, we, we now can, can go on, you know, get, get access to anything we want. Uh, but that, that's another barrier to entry, right? So not only um, what language is it written in, but also the cost to reproduce these and the cost to have one in your house um, much less the ability to read it, actually. You know, all of these were, were in a sense, barriers to entry. Um, I think sort of the, the move from uh, only writing literary works in, in Latin and also now bringing in the vernacular is one move to kind of remove a barrier to entry, but there are still more, right, to, to come. Um, so it's, it's a really interesting period in, in, in the literary history to kind of watch these poets um, make that choice to 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 write in the vernacular, but you're exactly right. They're they're writing to a in many respects to a learned audience, because those are the only people that would have known all of the references that they're making, um, that would have had the access to that kind of knowledge, um, those kinds of resources were the educated. Um, so so yeah, it's it's a really fascinating. Um, process of development, right, of getting these texts um, into the hands of, of more people. But again, you're depending on a certain level of education to really understand everything that's going on here. There are certain things that they probably would understand, other things maybe not. Um, it's, yeah, there's a lot wrapped up in in that. Um, so it's, it's fascinating to kind of watch and, that. And I, I noticed that also, uh, later like in the future uh, in terms of the timeline of when stories were written i just gotten finished reading uh um count of monte cristo mm -hmm. and there's just footnote after footnote after footnote of all these references that i would have missed uh if i didn't have the particular copy about what kind of play was popular in 1844 i've <laughs> you know it, it's yeah. just things the um the barrier to entry for me, I'd be missing a bunch of those references. Um, and the average like farmer person would probably be missing a bunch of these references too. Um, doesn't necessarily detract from the story, but it, it can be improved a little bit. Mm -hmm. No, exactly. And, and in, in the case of Count of Monte Cristo, and I, and I think that's true. I mean, you might think of like the novels also of, like Jane Austen or, um, you know, Dostoevsky, I mean, you can kind of pick, in a way, pick, pick a, a, a literary work. Um, and, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning about this, this question about sentence and solace, right? This, this idea about meaning and delight. And that on a certain level, there are readers who will be able to read with, with incredible like depth, right? Because they're going to know these references or they're going to go dig them up and they're going to read them because they're doing a PhD or they're doing, you know, they just are really curious readers and they're going to go and they're going to go to that level. And then there are other readers who are going to just read the stories for the delight of reading the stories. And yeah, they may not get every reference, 
but there is still a delight to a story like Count of Monte Cristo or to Pride and Prejudice or, you know, or the Canterbury Tales, even if you're not catching all of the references. And I think that's one of the beauties of, of these works of literature, right, is that um, you can read them on all of these different levels. Um, and they invite us to come back and reread as we become more sophisticated ourselves, as we expand our experience, as we expand, you know, what else we've read, what else we've learned. Um, they invite us to come back, you know, and, and every time we come back with that enriched sort of storehouse of references, I think we take more and more away from, from these stories. And I think that's why, uh, in many ways, why they endure um, is because they invite us to come back and, and keep reading. Um, I've been teaching, you know, Dante, for example. Uh, so I teach literature here at the University of Dallas, and I've been teaching that text for at least a decade. Uh, so I'm coming back to it at least once a year, if not twice a year. Um, and I find new things in it always, right? It's one of those texts that, and, and in conversation with students, students will see things that I have never seen. Um, and, and through conversation, you know, it invites that kind of, uh, it has that sort of depth, that kind of richness. And um, yeah, so it's it's exciting to come back to it as well. And I got I got one more question I just thought of about yeah, the yeah. education. Um, and like the kind of the barrier to entry, you got all these tales of different, like different types of people. Uh, the priest would have been an educated man. So I haven't read all of, I haven't read like really any of the Canterbury tales. I was reading some of it during your lecture. Um, but the miller and the cook wouldn't have been educated. You're, you don't see a bunch of those references to the, the need and stuff in their tales do you i i haven't read them but i wouldn't expect uh references to high art from an uneducated man right you you wouldn't um and one of the things that i think that chaucer again does so artfully is that some of what happens with the miller for example because he's tapping into another very big question that gets to the 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 whole um question about interpretation and things like that. And he's talking about what, what do you do about translating scriptures from the Latin into the vernacular? And, and it is a raunchy tale, um, but there are aspects to it that I think are very, very serious. And he's asking very serious questions about, you know, if you put the scriptures in the mouth of someone like Robin the Miller, what's going to happen? Like if you vernacularize the scriptures, what's going to happen? If you make it part of the popular parlance, what happens? And so Part of what happens with the unlearned or the lower classes, we might say, of storytellers is that there is a lowness of style that can creep in. So we might have, you know, really raunchy, ribald stories like from the Miller and from the, the cook, um, from uh, from the Reeve, from these sorts of lower class, uh, uh, less educated people, perhaps. But Chaucer still is the because he's the the architect. He is still, I think, weaving in some of these deeper, more serious questions, even as, again, he's he's uh, presenting us with a story that is in very low style, um, seems like it's coming from somebody who's very uneducated, who doesn't know any better, um, and whose, whose humor is in the gutter and all of that. And yet Chaucer, as the poet, right, who's, who is imagining all of these stories is, is, I think, still laying under that subtext of those deeper questions that he's trying to explore. 
you know, again, through these different voices. So, so there is some depth of reference, I guess, is the, the answer to your question. Um, there, there are references to scripture, for example, in the Miller, um, and references to other things as well that we might not expect. But again, that's because that's, that's Chaucer, I think, kind of inviting us to, to ask these big questions about, um, yeah, about some of these, about some of these things, these issues that he's very, very concerned about. What do you do? Like, yes, I'm writing in the English vernacular, but does that mean everything should be in the vernacular? Like, what do we do about that? What do we do with the scriptures? How do we, how do we do that well and do that responsibly and, and make sure that it's given its due respect? Um, so yeah, it's, that's just, a, a, again, sort of a, an invitation, I suppose, to, to read, you know, widely through the Canterbury Tales and, and see how he does kind of, again, weave in these sophisticated questions, even as he's like putting that in collision with a very low, a very low style. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of the answer to that is it might surprise you. Um, some of those sophisticated questions that emerge even through yeah, you know, the, I the voice of someone. I wasn't saying that there wouldn't be sophisticated questions, just not mm -hmm. references to high art. Um, I wouldn't have been surprised about scripture references from the uneducated storytellers in this collection of stories um, because like probably their only literary like adventure that they've experienced would be scripture at mass. Um, but they wouldn't have experienced Virgil, Homer, mm -hmm. um, you know, any of the other, great you know great works of the west that existed at the time um but the fact that he does put it into like i'm a low style does kind of answer my question it's mm -hmm. not you're not going to see the high art references right you're going to see maybe a slight bastardization of scripture due to their understanding and you can get plenty of mm -hmm. um deep questions from uh the most unlikely of sources Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And again, I mean, I think it, it, it is sometimes just, it's surprising um, what, what he will allude to or what he'll have either the events of the story allude to or the resonances that he'll be drawing. Um, so yeah, again, it's, it's part of that. It's part of that depth um, and richness that, that I think um, that I think you see for sure. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's delightful. I encourage, I encourage all of you, if you, if you haven't really spent a lot of time with Chaucer, um, maybe consider this a, a really great invitation, I guess, to, to just see what you find, you know, and, and read some of the other tales, read Wife of Bath. Um, the wife is very sophisticated. She is potentially like, she's not really a lower class character. She has money. She's able to travel but she is a learned woman. And so she's one of those perhaps surprises where we might not expect to see her have the breadth and depth of knowledge that she does of the classical sources um, and scripture and all of this, but she, she does. Um, and so she, she might be a great one to kind of look at as, as like an exemplar of someone who is really kind of considered by many of the pilgrims in the story itself to be uh, kind of a scandalous woman, um, but she's very educated and she has a lot to say. Um, she has a lot to say about a lot of things. So she might be a fun one to read uh, next if you're kind of looking for another tale to dive into. Um, she's a fun one. So, yeah. 
So with that, I mean, I see that it is about eight o'clock and I think uh, perhaps we will we will uh, go ahead and, and wrap things up. But I'm so thankful uh, for all of you for attending this evening and for joining me for um, for this this excursion into the Canterbury Tales. And I hope that it was a, uh, a fruitful and, and hopefully delightful experience to kind of get to explore some of these questions in, in one of our great poets. So. Thank you all so much for being here. Thank you, Larissa, for inviting me and Nicole. Uh, I appreciate it very much. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2023, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.